Hello, and welcome to Resolve, an after-play show. This is an after-show for a role-playing game that does not have an actual play, where we tell you all the details of our game so you don't have to listen to it. Hi, I'm Sammy. I'll be your host. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm playing the wonderful mermaid, Asiri Amoli. Joining me today is my co-host, Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. I use he, him pronouns. And for the special character introduction, we're also being temporarily co-hosted by Daniel. Hi, my name is Daniel, and my pronouns are he, him. Before we start talking about Asiri, my character, we should talk a little bit about myself and my history with tabletop games. I've always loved reading and storytelling and that sort of thing. So I, I was a writer first and foremost. I've been making characters and picking at what is my current novel universe since I was in first grade. That concept of story writing and making a character and following that through has always been very integral to my person. But for role-playing specifically, I did a lot of forum board style role-playing with different like fan groups and whatever nothing too like fandom heavy but definitely it was on a fandom forum board and I eventually became a moderator of that site so you could argue that's a little bit of GMing in that way too it wasn't until college where I finally dipped my toe into actual tabletop games where I became Alex's co-DM for the Pokemon tabletop where I was doing the battle stuff while he was running the story stuff at the same time and then from there I did D&D with Zach D&D with Morgan. We did another Pokemon. I think I did like two more Pokemon things uh, while I was still in college. And then I did my first vampire campaign somewhere in there. And then interstitial with you, Alex, my other vampire campaign. And then I think we ended up here. Definitely a lot more GM focused on my side, though. I've definitely been a GM more than I've been a player. Was there any tabletop game in particular that had a really lasting impact with you? (laughs) Uh, this should be obvious for anybody that knows me but my favorite system is vampire the masquerade it's my home system it's the system i've storytelled gm the most i love monsters i love the idea of trying to cling to something you've lost so desperately but the personal horror story and tragedy that is set up in a well-done vampire campaign is something i'm obsessed with chasing that magic plus it the ST system is not very bogged down mechanically for my peanut brain like D&D is. So it's very simple. You have to get X amounts of successes above this number, and then that determines how well you do. Very simple, very streamlined. It doesn't bog down my brain at all, other than combat, but combat's its own monster in that (laughs) system. If if anyone's like, hey, I'm running a vampire campaign, I'm like, ooh, I would like to see that. (laughs) Even if I'm not a player, I still like to watch and listen to see what is going on in a VTM game or really any of the other White Wolf sort of storyteller games. All of them are fascinating in their own aspects. What made you take the leap into that first Pokemon game? What excited you about the possibility of GMing, but from a very mechanical standpoint? When I went to college, I was very shy. And one of the reasons I chose the college I did go to was because I didn't want to be surrounded by the same people in my small town I grew up in. But I was also very shy. So it was this conflation of me wanting to meet people, but also being too timid to do so. So when I went to the, was it Gobbler Fest, where all of the Virginia Tech club activities do their elevator pitch to get new members every year. When I met all y'all at that, 
and then went to the first meeting and found it out, hey, some people aren't leaving. Why is that? And we started talking. I was like, oh, I've done RP online with, you know, these old school forums and whatever. It's not so much of a big step for me to go ahead and do this. I was like, well, if I can do this successfully, then maybe I can make some friends and stop being the shy little <laughs> little goth kid at the side of the corner of the room. <laughs> but yeah, it was mostly a social thing. And it was also something I wanted to challenge myself because you have to be a lot faster when you're sitting at the table. Whereas if you're behind a computer screen or just writing a book, you know, you have all the time in the world basically to hit publish or send. What do you think draws you to GMing so much over playing? I don't know if I've just pigeonholed myself into being a forever DM or whatever. Sometimes it's more fun for me to just kind of be the hand behind the scene making weird shenanigans happen and just see how people react to it. Because like the most time I'm having fun in a, in a session where I'm DMing is I'm watching the players go back and forth and try to solve the problem. And it could be very easy to just be like, oh, you have to do X, Y, Z. But I'd never set up a puzzle that way. Half of the fun is just them going, oh, what if we did this thing? Or what if I tried it from this approach? The player is taking something and just completely sideswiping me with a concept that I didn't even think about that. So I guess it keeps me on my toes a little bit, the the thrill of it. I, I'm, a, I'm a serial multitasker and a serial perfectionist, so I'd like being occupied with many pots at the stove at once trying to manage them all. So the puzzle of it is a lot of fun for me. And plus, I'm always constantly engaged as a GM. Well, sometimes I feel like as a player, you know, everyone has their scene as a player. So you have to give and take from spotlight a little bit. But as a GM, I just I'm 100% engaged all the time, which is very hard for me in my attention brain. <laughs> have you learned anything from being a player that helped you as a GM or something from being a GM that's helped you as a player? From being a player... I've definitely learned there are times in which it's okay to be the butt of the joke. It's okay to sort of let your character fail. That was something I struggled with a lot when I was first getting into it because you know, I'm a perfectionist. So whenever I rolled poorly, I would just like, oh, this is stupid. I don't like it. But, you know, as I've gotten older and sort of matured a little bit, I've let loose a little bit. It's, it's okay to fail sometimes. It's okay to have your character learn from that mistake. And going from a GM to a player side, it makes things more interesting watching your characters mess something up because that's usually when the story takes a pivot or takes a turn in a direction that you wouldn't expect or you wouldn't have imagined that, oh, my character really has a problem with this and I've never realized that this is an issue. How can I develop that further? When we are at our weakest, it often shows what our strongest potentials are. Would you like to talk about your relationship to the group? Daniel, you are my partner. We've been together for four years. Zach, Carolyn, Alex, I met in college through the Pocatech Club. D, I didn't meet till our first interstitial campaign. And Dex, I also went to college with, but we didn't really hang out. At that. Like we've had like ships in the night chance encounters sort of things, but we didn't really get to know <laughs> each other until uh, Alex's first interstitial campaign. But yeah, mostly college friends. And then, Daniel, I met you through a mutual college friend at the time. Are there any fun facts about yourself? I have to go log in and count. But I am, I think, if memory serves, a 10-time winner of NaNoWriMo, which is the National Writing Month of November Challenge, where you write a 50,000-word novel in the span of 30 days of November. The only rules are that you write a piece and it's 50,000 words. You win by completing it. There's no like judge table or anything like that. There's no awards other than your personal satisfaction for engaging in such masochism. 
but it's a challenge I, I do every year. The only time I didn't do it consecutively was two years in college where I was just too busy to do it. But I've every year I've done it, I've won. And it's my little favorite thing for the end of the year that I also dread at the same time. <laughs> you talked quite a bit about how you started out more as wanting to write stories and you've kept that along the way. Has anything from your experience with tabletop games gone back and influenced your story writing? Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of characters that I sort of beta test in campaigns that I play. Most recently in our vampire campaign, I did a lot of character developments for uh, the side character Icarus. So he developed a lot of personality from that campaign. But also as a player, I will also test out character stuff. One of the characters in my novel universe, Arthur, completely was a forum based character until I yanked him out of that and made more use of him. Yeah, absolutely. It's a two-way street, too, because things I pick up from other players at the table, I'll snatch on and insert those little character quirks into my book characters. And, you know, things that I'm interested in in my book characters, I'll put into my players or my player characters or my DM characters. Arch does not exist isolated. Everything influences each other, and I like to see (laughs) that (laughs) ebb and flow. Sounds like we have a great idea about you in terms of role playing, but now it's time to talk about a Siri. Give us a general rundown about her. Yeah, a Siri's full name is a Siri Amoli. She is a deep sea abyssal plain dwelling mermaid. She is ten foot long with dark purple scales with some lighter lavender-ish counter shading. She's not like your traditional half naked lady fish tail traditional pretty mammalian sort of base mermaid. She is a fish, first and foremost, and she is based off of Greenland sharks, sleeper sharks, the vampire squid, which is not actually a real type of squid. It's a different family. Deep sea jellyfish, that sort of stuff. She's very scary, leaning more onto the sort of siren side of mermaids, where at first blush, you'd probably be terrified if you saw her because she doesn't have hair. Her head is several protruding webbed vampire squid-like tendrils that sort of just move ambiently into her mood. She's got these jellyfish-like tentacles at her side that have stinging cells. So she has bioluminescence that runs all throughout her body. She's very intimidating to look at if you're not used to looking deep sea creatures. I'm sure every once in a while you'll see an article pop up on like National Geographic and be like, oh, what the hell is that that they dragged out of the ocean? That sort of vibe. She's not easy to look at, (laughs) but that's intentional. (laughs) So yeah, she could be horrifying for us surface walkers to behold, possibly. But what about her personality? Is her personality terrifying? (laughs) That depends if you are prey or not. Predator through and through, scavenging, hunting, whatever she can, because the Abyssal Plane is mostly a desert anyway. She, personality-wise, is an absolute sweetheart. Just, like, the kindest thing. If you talk to her and get to know her, she's always willing to help out. She's always trying to do better. She's very timid. She's very uncertain of herself. Definitely has a lot of anxiety and self-doubt issues, but she tries not to let that stop her either. There's always something to do, always something to be done. Even if she makes a choice and she regrets it, she's still gonna have to go forward because... Going backwards just leads to the nothingness you've already seen. So all in all, if if you're not prey, she's a delight. But if you are prey, then good luck. <laughs> there seems to be a lot of realistic details 
that are kind of behind the nature of a series existence. Could you walk us through a little bit of maybe some of your inspirations or even references that you sort of drew from to make a series? So I'm a nerd. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm currently studying zoobiology and zoology, particularly marine biology, because it's always been my favorite. And I've basically been obsessed with the ocean since I was like third grade or whatever. So there's a lot of actual deep sea morphology and ecology that goes into her. It's it, Yes, there's the fantasy bullshit with, you know, magical siren singing and spells and rituals and all that. But I, I wanted it to be like, if we sent a submarine drone or some other unmanned vehicle into the ocean, this could be maybe not certainly biologically possible, but at least something interesting, right? So there's... Biological and pseudo-biological influences that go into that. I remember Animal Planet, like a billion years ago, had that, like, mermaids if they were real fakeumentary. So there's a little bit of that that goes in there. There's a little bit of the classical siren myth where if you hear the song, you get lured to shore like Odysseus did in the Odyssey. There's that unnatural appeal, even though objectively you and I would probably think she's terrifying to look at. There's still something about her that draws you in, like oh, lanternfish and anglerfish, the bioluminescence, a series tongue has a lantern on it so that she can lure and prey while swimming around. It comes from a lot of places, but mostly I wanted to do something that just wasn't, oh, here's a pretty girl with uh, a fishtail. I love monsters, as I said earlier, so I wanted to do something a little bit more monstrous and maybe realistic with it. What's the environment that spawned our beautiful monster Asiri? The Abyssal Plain is one of the hardest locations to live in on this planet Earth, barring as I've said previously, tide pools and certain like acid pits where only archaeobacteria live. There's no, absolutely no sunlight. Sunlight cannot filter through the water at this point. As a result, there's no plant life or kelp or coral or anything really sort of your base food chain sort of thing. So everything you get in this environment is basically marine snow, which is like scales, detritus, waste from other creatures that slowly filters down, or actual carcasses of larger creatures that manage to fall their way down. So there's aridness. It's, it's, it is a desert in the fact that there's very little nutritionally going on there. There's not a lot of activity. I really wanted to focus in on the desolation, the small isolation individuality of a person or like a sentient being that lived in such an environment and what their culture could have been like as a result of that. Because there are other mermaids that Asiri deals with, but it's mostly as a result of that darkness and depth and pressure and currents and uncertainty. Your existence is predicated on acts of fortune. What is the uh, culture that Asiri belongs to? What is that culture like? Asiri is one of the deep folk, and in the world Asiri lives in, there are two types of mermaids. There's the deep folk and the shallow folk. The deep folk obviously live below the light level. They're entirely dependent on what I said, the the fortune of marine snow and other things like whale fall and whatever. Whereas the shallow folk are probably what you're more used to. They, they, they're a lot more colorful and flashy. They look more like reef fish and things like that. They probably have more interaction with people. And as a result, their lives are very fast paced and social. And there's a lot less 
focus on existence because everything moves so fast in the shallows. There's not a lot of mourning or waste put it on to anything that lives or dies in the shallows because everything is eventually reused and recycled so quickly. Whereas Asiri in the deep folk, there's sadness and an understanding that, hey, you may meet somebody and then you will never see them again. Each mermaid has a song and every time they encounter somebody, they add that part of their story to their song. So it's a eternally spinning sort of social folk story that you carry with you. And each song is unique to each mermaid and they kind of each communicate in that mindset that life is precious because it can go in a flash and then there's nothing left of you except perhaps what is the tale somebody else told you. Part of that ritual and spirituality goes into the cult. I, I hesitate to use the word theocracy for the society that Assyria lives in because there's just so few of them. I, I can't imagine more than two or three hundred people at the city they live in. Uh, what was I called? Odessa Marilla. Whenever they do get together, they do these intricate rituals that sort of worship the ocean and this the entity known as the abyss, which is the darkness that they live in. So everything is sort of given and taken from the abyss in the fact that they take these powers and then they give them back. They do whatever they need to do to survive and then they do something in equal force or balance to give back to the water that they are spawned from. It's very ritualistic and very cyclical. When they meet each other, they undergo this process of exchanging parts of their songs with each other to sort of build that story. Why did they leave each other? Why don't they just stick together all the time? Because it's not sustainable. The only time you'll find them really meeting each other is either to mate because they're fish. Certain rituals that require more energy from more people. So very big spiritual events, very, like holidays, things like that. At whale falls or the falls of other large creatures, that is basically a fucking buffet, a smorgasbord of food for them. The caloric intake of any given square foot of the ocean floor in the abyss is minuscule. Was it a statistic that like a whale fall gave you like thousands of years of calories in just one single event? It's not sustainable for you to be together for a long point because then you, you turn from a companion to competition. So there's that understanding that isolation, at least temporarily, is for the best of everyone. So who has a Siri managed to form some sort of lasting connection with? What are her starting links? She has a mastery link with her elder, a woman by the name of Elder Musa. A Siri is next in line for training to become a priestess as part of the ritualistic society. Elder Musa is the teacher that was selected for her. She's a very sort of grumpy, very quiet, anglerfish looking mermaid, very stout, sort of like a folktale sort of character because she's just so old and knows so much that she just doesn't really talk very much anymore. And then when she does speak, it's very cryptic. So she's trying to learn a lot of the ways of the abyss from a creature that basically has become the abyss itself in a fashion. So she's very honored and enlightened to be in the presence of such a, like a larger than life character for her, but also very intimidated and confused because every time she tries to fulfill a command that Elder Musa gives her, she feels like she's doing it wrong because the commands aren't clear at all. <laughs> <laughs> she's also has a heart link with her sister whose name is Karina. This sort of dynamic, uh, I think I was telling Dan, it's, it's a bit like Starfire and Blackfire in the Teen Titans cartoon. Karina is the Blackfire. 
here. Karina was supposed to be the, she's the older sister. She's the, the smarter one. She was the one that was like, I'm going to become the next priestess no matter what. She's the golden child. She has to do everything right. Everything is perfect. She's studied the most. She's gotten the best integration into all of these esoteric concepts. But when the ritual for the next selection came by, she was passed over. Asiri herself looks up to Karina as like, oh, you know the rituals and everything. It doesn't make sense to me. And I, I it, it puts her into her place and it sort of adds to her sort of self-thought of inadequacy. Why she was selected over Karina, because it just does not compute to her why exactly her sister was passed over rather than her. Lastly, I have Forsafini. Forsafini is... <laughs> <laughs> Forsafini is a spotted eagle ray that has sort of become, if a series like a witch, Forsafini is like her familiar. They're a bonded pair of creatures. It's not so much that they have to be together all the time. Forsafini will go F off and do stingray things for long stretches of time before coming back to a series. But they have a connection that is stronger than steel and they can always sort of sense what direction the other one is in. And whenever a Siri calls, Forsafini will drop whatever they're doing and then come back. And Forsafini is very puppy-like. They're very cute and they're not quite full grown yet. They're about the size of... Uh, a series torso, maybe a little bit bigger, but their wingspan will get a lot larger. They themselves are a little bit shy, like they're shyer than uh, a series, so like they won't approach strangers at all. They much rather just kind of do their own thing, but they're very doting. Yeah, so a series has a, a light link mechanically with Forsafini. What playbook are you playing, and what inspired you to pick that playbook? So a series is playing the light, which. It comes from a couple of things. One, if you know me, I love puns. So Assyria is bioluminescence, so she can light up. So she is literally the light in the darkness of her environment. But also more so, I don't think Assyria is the hero of the story. So I didn't want to choose The Chosen, which is like your default protagonist sort of book. She brings out the best in other people. She's a catalyst for a solution to a problem without maybe being the one that solves the problem, if that makes sense. She has a lot to learn about herself, and through that lens, she helps other people solve their problems. Always positive, no, no matter what, because, you know, you kind of have to be by going months and months without eating food, and then, <laughs> you know, not knowing when the next meal is coming. She's very methodical in how she forages and does things, and I, I just think it makes sense that she's sort of this uplifting force through all of this darkness and gloom that her world is all the time. It's a very direct metaphor in a way, huh? I'm known for those. <laughs> <laughs> what moves have you selected at the start and why? So um, going back to my horrible premonitions for terrible jokes, um, I have chosen there is a light in every dark place because she is literally a light. But that allows me to, when I'm trying to convince somebody, when they're angry, I can use light in place of my heart stat. We need to think before we act, which makes sense because every decision you make in the environment she lives in is a life or death one. So when you wish for guidance, you may ask, what here will keep my friends safe? And the GM will answer you honestly. She's very analytical. She's always kind of gathering all this information from her environment. That sort of makes sense for her from a gameplay perspective as well. And then the last one is you can't fool me. You can always tell when somebody is lying to you. She's part shark. So she has uh, ampules of Lorenzini. So she can sense the muscles and electrical systems in creatures around her. And her other senses are just so refined that 
lying does not exist in her culture because they can all tell when each other are lying to each other. So it's a very literal society where you can be tricked, but it's very hard to do so. So she can tell when other people around her are lying because of those small little changes in heartbeat, twitches of certain muscles and stuff. So I just thought that was interesting from like the shark perspective. So what does Asiri sound like? Does that playbook come out in her voice at all? Is there a light bubbly side to Asiri? The way I've, way I've been playing her, she's a little ditzy. It's not that she's stupid. It's just she literally does not know anything about the culture, like the surface culture she's been thrust into through the campaign. So it's definitely higher pitched than my regular voice. It's a little fast. It's run on sentences. It's a little, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. It's very, uh, are you okay? Is that normal for you? Why don't you have scales? That, that sort of very fast, rapid very nervous sort of energy but when she's like mad or focused on something you still get that it, it's still higher than my regular voice a little nasalier but it's still very focused and very particular and exact it's not quite cadenced in the same way that my speaking voice is normally we landed a little bit on a series issues with seeing people that don't exactly fit into an aquatic perspective what did she think about the rest of the party here yeah, so Asiri's never encountered anything from, like, she's been to the surface maybe once or twice, just as part of the dial cycle of migration, but she never really goes up above, like, the twilight zone of the water, so she has basically no cognition of anything that goes on in the surface other than maybe the, the stray story of humanity from the very few shallow folks she encounters. So she's got really no concept of grass or cows or the way human buildings and things like things that we are normally like cooking, clothes, none of that. Going into the other characters, it's A, a gigantic culture shock. And then B, she has to sort of filter out what's true and false from the what few rumors she has heard. Smog, she's very intrigued by, mostly because they are snack sized for her. But he seems to carry himself well, and once she's aware that he is sapient and has, you know, his own thoughts, it's like, oh, okay, you know, you're you're there. I get kind of a weird energy from you, but you're fine. As they go forward, they're going to have an interesting relationship being the light and the dark. They sort of both complement and oppose each other in very specific ways. But right now, she's like, okay, you seem to know what you're doing, at least I hope. She, she appreciates their confidence. She likes uh, Juice a lot. Juice reminds her of Persephone <laughs> a lot. So she's just enthralled with some weird creature that kind of is as tentacled as her. That's very comforting for her <laughs> in her uh, transition away from the ocean as it, as it is now. Pony was the first person she met. They don't look like a horse or a unicorn. She doesn't know what a unicorn is, but somebody has described her as a horse. And she does not look like a seahorse, which she would just call a regular horse. She's still figuring that out. But hey, at least Pony's been nothing but nice. Pony's been very, again, self-assured. She likes the confidence. She likes the stories and the description of magic from what she's told. Because magic isn't really a concept. It's just, you know, what you do for a Siri. So now that she has a word for it, it's been very educational. Geyser? She does not like Geyser. Uh, <laughs> because she can sense Geyser's intent and she knows it's not helpful. It's been very frustrating for her. Just right off the bat, everything that she's seen Geyser do does not mesh or help the group that they're in. So she's very frustrated by that. Tao and Asiri are like soft rivals. They're both musicians. They're both singers. Part of her is fascinated by the non-corporeal setup that Tao has. But the other part is like, oh, people think their music's better and I don't like that. <laughs> so it's a little petty, but... <laughs> 
but mostly I think they get along okay with Tao. They still need more time to adjust and understand because I, I'd wager with how electrical Tao is, it probably messes with her senses a little bit too. But for the most part, she thinks Tao is all right. Athena, she is near, not worshipping, but maybe reverent to, because she can sense that Athenos is a lot more than what they say they are. Not even what they say they are, because they just straight up said that they're a god. Athenos <laughs> um, is exactly what he said. That's exactly what she said. Maybe um, understanding like what exactly that even like means. Yeah, like very understanding of the systems in place and like can actually sense that Thanos probably isn't bullshitting. There's a lot of powerful shit going on there. She's very interested. She wants to learn more about it because they definitely don't act in what she's been told the gods should do. But hey, perhaps this is a surface thing that she just needs to learn from. What is Isiri's favorite food? <laughs> the most important food culturally would be whale fall. So when a whale dies and its corpse eventually sinks down to the bottom of the ocean. Second to that, she would have a fondness for eel. Gulper eel specifically. Had Isiri been in a significant romantic relationship? I'm gonna say no, because Asiri is, what did I say, 27 years old, about, and their species ages slower, so along with actual Greenland sharks, they live on the order of minimum 300 years. So she's kind of just reached adulthood. It hasn't been on, like, the forefront of her mind at all. So I'm gonna say no. She's she's not ready for that quite yet, and she's just coming around to it, but she is open to it. It's just, it's just never happened for her just yet. What is she looking for from a partner? It's hard because such relationships are very temporary and short, but definitely somebody who can calm her down very easily, somebody very relaxing and assured in themselves. She, she definitely appreciates a confident person, somebody that's able to take the time to really listen to her because she tends to talk pretty fast and rapidly and she understands that there can be a disconnect between what she's thinking and what she's saying. So somebody that would have to like know how to pick the pieces of what she's saying. Basically somebody who's fun to talk to and be around and sing with. And of course, Forsafini has to like them too, because if you don't, if the dog doesn't like you, then that's a problem. So, <laughs> Were there any impactful moments in your character's life that really shaped their worldview? The first one would be being selected as the new priestess in training, because she just never aspired to it at all. So that kind of shifted her understanding of her path through life. And then the, the big thing that's current right now in her society is that, yes, even though this is a desert and sort of an arid, rough survival landscape anyway, there have not been as many whale falls and like other passing food sources in a long time. So they're under a famine right now. So a lot of what she's working at and what she's doing in her training and just general existence is A, mostly geared to survival. Uh, before the campaign starts, she hadn't eaten in three months. And then B, sort of trying to to figure out why the abyss is punishing them in such a way what what is going wrong what are they doing wrong that they need to fix and right before being transported to a lovely arid desert what was going on with the siri the siri was in the middle of some ritual which i have not specified yet because i need to think about that some more but definitely either like a big initiation for her training or like some sort of step before she can get to the next level and whether this is true or not she feels like she did something wrong so she at the end of it immediately leaves uh, Odessa Marilla the city she's from and just heads out into the nothingness she's got all these negative thoughts in her head and that's at which point she gets zapped into the world of the game what is one thing that you have not told anyone else about Assyria yet 
a series name is taken from a character in one of my guilty pleasure games, a Flash game that still operates, Dragon Fable. There's a character in the Atelian faction who is sort of the the mage teacher. They 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 take mage classes and turn it into a class called the Ascendant. And her name is also a Siri. And she's just like this really astral space sort of very cryptic sort of character. One of the perks of the Ascendant class is that you sort of read constellations and use those powers to sort of deal damage and combo on your enemies. So I was just like, oh, I really like this name and I kind of like this concept of stars because even though as much as I love space and the, the beauty of this imagery, it's a lot more interesting to me to put this into a deep sea context where that darkness, that sort of emptiness is still there. But there are still those little blips of light and chances at hope that a deep sea creature could totally draw inspiration from. So that's that's the series' first name. Her last name, Amoli, is taken from a gemstone called Amolite, which is formed under certain conditions when the fossil remains of ammonites are pressed a certain way. And it's this really pretty sort of rainbow textured, pearlescent rock. It's very pretty. Go Google a photo of it. It's awesome. me Babylon about who Assyri is, let's hop into the resolution phase where I get to say something about Assyri and nobody else gets to comment. What I want going forward for Assyri is to A, gain some confidence, that's pretty obvious, but I also want her to discover that she's absolutely a lot more capable than she believes she is. She's a very strong, very quick-witted person, and I hope that this experience that she's been thrust into opens her eyes to the potentials of what she could actually be. You can find me whenever you hear the thing that goes bump in the night. Please stop leaving things on the floor. I'm getting a lot of stub toes. This has been Resolve, an after-play show. You can find us online at most social media sites at ResolveAP. Except Instagram, which is at ResolveAfterPlay. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can buy the game we're playing, Interstitial, Our Hearts Intertwined, from its creator, Riley Hopkins, at linksmithgames.com. All links will be in the description of this episode. Thank you again for listening. We end our turn here, so now it's your turn. Tell us about a character you're making for your game. <laughs>